Today's speaker is a man who always invites you and me to let our light shine. He's always in the business of ensuring that our center shines, and he certainly proved that last week. Will you welcome our very own spiritual director, Reverend Patrick Cameron. Good morning. Wow. Every day is great. Whether there's 10 or... You know, we had 1,150 people there last week. It was sure fun. I think it was fun. I was to look over at Brown. He didn't smile, so I think... (laughs) I had fun. Anyway, good morning. Anybody here for the first time that was actually at that event? Well, welcome. We promise not to scare you or try and sell you Tupperware or anything like that while you're here. Uh, It was a great opportunity for us. I've always wanted to do our Easter or Christmas in a larger venue because we truly do have, I think, uh, over a thousand people that participate in a very meaningful way here. And it helps plant the seeds of possibility for us in terms of... And it's just so lovely to have everyone's heart and soul in the building together. So... We were able to do that, and I'm so grateful for that. So standing in that gratitude with you this morning, I'd like to share a song that we do each week. If you'd like to stand with me and sing that, that'd be great. If not, please stay seated. The words will be behind me. It's in this very room, and then I'll go right into an affirmative prayer. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit. is in this very room in this very room in this very room and so I invite you to know with me in this moment let my words be yours if they are a good fit and if not let them pass but let them pass in peace and joy dissolve them into a heart of unconditional love in this moment what I know And I affirm for myself in the I am, knowing there is only one of us here. There is one life. That life is divine. That life is spirit. That life is God. It is Father, Mother, God. It is everywhere present and nowhere in particular. But by this divine invocation, this vow, I partner in my life. I open my heart and mind in this moment to all the good that is pressing itself towards me. For it is the Father, Mother, God's good wish to provide the kingdom. And that kingdom is upon this plane of life. And may my vision be lifted up. May my conversation be in heaven. May my vision be so brilliant and wonderful that there is no doubt my next step, my next word, my next breath. May my activity this day provide a positive support for one other. This is my spiritual practice this day. To stand in the the generosity of spirit, this unbounded opportunity and to realize every opportunity is an opportunity to share and to help another. And so I use my consciousness, 
I use my physical form and I use my emotional strength and being to convey the essence of spirit by means of me. God can only do for us what God does through us. And I say yes to all of that. I give thanks. I give thanks knowing all the blessings that are right and perfect for myself and for you to be present here and now, are here and now. And the eyes and the ears to see that and to hear that are here now. For this I give thanks with great gratitude knowing it is already done in the mind of the one and I am the place where it shows up. Together we say, and so it is. Amen. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Brown. Yeah, it was quite a, quite a day for us to be able to, to pull that off at the, the Windspear. And I thank everyone that was there and, and uh, all the people that uh, were involved in that, so many, and our musicians. So this, <clears throat> this month I wanted to share from a bit of uh, Dr. Holmes' book. Dr. Ernest Holmes is our founder. He's got a wonderful book called This Thing Called Life. If you haven't read it, it's just a gem. I, I tell new people that come to our center, they buy the Science of Mind textbook. That's our core book. And I tell them, that's not designed to read alone. So don't buy it and try and read that on your, on your own because it's, it's, uh, it's some muddy water there. You need some help. You need, it's kind of like going down through a swamp and you need one of the native people that can guide the boat to get you through the, the terrain. It's just very, very, it's a wonderful consciousness. But, and I'm not trying to pick on that book. It's a wonderful book. I love the book. Every time I open it up, I read something new, and I've read it a hundred times. But a thing called Life, and it's now called The Art of Life, is a wonderful book. And in it, the first page, you said, the answer to our need lies not in God's willingness, but in our will to accept, in our ability through faith to recognize the divine presence as the great reality of life. And he only taught three things. So if you're here for the first time, I'll give you a quick overview. But what we teach here is spirituality and consciousness. I talked about it at the Windspear a bit about the consciousness of the teacher Jesus. And the reason I say the teacher Jesus is he was a teacher. He was a rabbi. He was Jewish. And he showed up and he revolutionized the way we think about our relationship with the divine. He talked about unconditional love. Dr. Holmes said I, he only talked or wrote about three things his entire career. He was a prolific writer. He wrote many, many books. I don't know how many, but it was, it was up there. In number. Number one, he said there's one God common to all in and through all of us. In and through all of us. One God common to all in and through and all of us. And it's pretty, <clears throat> be hard to uh, discount that. But what it does is it brings God uh, personally to us right here and right now. Number two, there's a universe that responds with mechanical regularity to the spontaneity of our thoughts. There's a universe that responds with mechanical regularity to the spontaneity of our thoughts. And that's why consciousness influences our life. And so when we change the, sub, the, the sum total of our consciousness, our life experience begins to change. But the problem is we're, we're like fish. We're like fish in the ocean of God, looking around saying, where's God? I don't see her anywhere. Number three, there's, and the 11th commandment of theology, which when we did the blessing, this inspired the blessing we did. When, and a lot of people really love that blessing. The one thing we left out was the uh, First Nations people, which if and when we ever do it again, we'll make sure we include. But the 11th commandment of theology is, thou shalt, not, thou shalt love one another as I have loved you. <clears throat> Let's do unto others as we would have done unto us. Thou shalt love one another as I have loved you. And so it's opening to that, because what I believe is, is true about this is we are starved for this awe, for the sacred in our lives. As we look out at the world, to, for me, every time I see discord and disease and I see fear and darkness, I know that we're star we are starved, in my own experience, starved for the awe and for the sacred. 
That's why we make pilgrimages. That's why we go to retreats. That's why we do spiritual practice. That's why we take classes. But what we all want is some link to that divine. I believe that is part of, the, it's part of our DNA. We just naturally long for that. But because we don't have a box to sort of pursue that, <clears throat> it becomes difficult. It becomes confusing for us at times. That's why religion is very popular. Because religion simplifies it. And if we follow the rules within a religious context, there's a reward at the end. And there's, not, and there's nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> it's, but it's kind of like going into McDonald's and just um, reading about the Big Mac and then getting the picture of the Big Mac and then just walking out. Our teaching is not about God. Our teaching is of God. And this is a challenge for us. I've been reading along with Dr. Holmes' book, a book by Carolyn Mace called Enter the Castle, and I've been using a lot of it on, on Wednesday evening. I started uh, diving into that. And it's a wonderful book. <clears throat> and she has had, it's based on the spiritual practice of Teresa of Avila, and it's such a nice balance and, and companion to what Dr. Holmes has to say in this thing called life. But she says, We are rarely open to see the presence of God within ourselves. And we fear intimacy with the divine unless it is on our terms. So I can have God in my life, but only when it's appropriate. <clears throat> Not now, God, I'm busy doing this. I'm watching TV and drinking a beer right now, so God, leave me alone. She says, we want constant proof that God hears our prayers and monitors our physical survival, but we do not really want to make eye contact with the divine because of the consequences. After encountering God, we would have to live a, a, a restlessly conscious, compassionate life, relentlessly conscious, compassionate life. And we would have to overlook the behavior of people in our world who continue to live as we once did. Isn't that a challenge? You come here, we, we share these principles on, on a Sunday, and we talk about compassion. We talk about, because what happens on the spiritual journey is we start to really dip into it and dive into it. Then everything we are right now, everything I was when I came here a number of years ago, it's all gone. That guy's history. He's gone. That my, consciousness, <clears throat> my consciousness has continued to evolve and grow. But the, the, th the things that brought me in the doors of this, this community 20, over 20 years ago, the longings I had, the discontent, the anger, the resentment, and all the things that motivated me to dive into spirituality are gone. And all the things that I was treating for when I was doing affirmative prayer, when you hear it say treat, it means affirmative prayer. We call it a, a spiritual mind treatment. And so our code for that is treat, so I'll try and use affirmative prayer. But all the things that I did prayer work for, I, don't, I can't even remember. But what happened is I dove into it, and all of a sudden I realized, you know, I might not know better. I might not know all the answers. It's possible to invite the experience of mysticism because we are practical mystics. This is a mystical practice. It is possible, as, as Carolyn May says, to invite the experience of mysticism into our lives and actively pursue a deeper experience of God. And the questions, he said, there's three questions to ask. For what reason was I born? For what reason was I born? What is, number two, what is the greater purpose and meaning of my life? Why are we here doing this? <clears throat> and how am I meant to be of service? Uh, last Sunday was a wonderful event for us to, to be able to, to go out into the world. And it was wonderful outreach for us. And I know many people that were new to our tradition, or there were people that walked in off the street that were taking literature with them. Because people don't understand what we do. And it used to be, 
when I, you know, that, that fellow I, I described to you over at the Second Cup a couple weeks ago that got in my atmosphere and wanted to know if we were teaching Christ over here. Um, his whole take on us was that, you know, the, you guys are all about self-service. You guys are all about uh, uh, self-centeredness. You are the, ce- the center for self-centeredness. And uh, that has never been our official name. But that's part of the perception. And so I know that. And so for me, when I hear that, I have to tell you that it's so much more for me. And it's precious to me. But I found myself getting angry. I found myself getting frustrated. I found myself getting all wound up in this conversation with this guy. And then I had to remind myself of who I am and whose I am and the commitment and the vow I have made. Carolyn Mace talks about this in this wonderful... I want to share a story that she shares in her her beautiful chapter. But first she says, what exactly does it mean to be conscious and to act consciously? What does that mean? We're conscious, we live intentionally and we're conscious. What is it, how, how, how conscious do we want to be? How do you act unconsciously? In other words, how often do you pretend to be unaware of the consequences of your actions and their incongruency with your beliefs? And so, when I was in this discussion with this man, there were, there were things going on, there were things happening within me that reminded me of 25, 30 years ago. And the interesting thing was, and the blessing in it was, is I'd done enough work with, in my own consciousness, in my own practice, where I didn't act upon those urges. And I realized, you know what, at that level I brought the, the most consciousness I could to it. And then I went about the business of, of doing the work I needed to do to get back into that balance and connection with what I think is the most important place for me to live. But what it required was, it required to ask the questions. And it, had, it required me to look at what my part, my, what my part was to play in that. And why it, was, why it was pushing my buttons. But as I look back at it, I'm so glad for all the practice, all the prayers, all the meditations, all the things that have gone into my life. But I realized, you know what, that stuff's still alive in me. You know, sometimes you think it's all gone, no, everything's great and peachy keen and... And all of a sudden, something like that happens. Life happens. Somebody comes up and says, no, you're not. You're not what you claim to be. <clears throat> you're not doing it the way I think you should be doing it. <clears throat> you know, and so all of that stuff kicks in. What makes it so difficult for you to act according to your beliefs? Well, there's stuff underneath there. Why do I need to defend anything? And if given a chance to become more conscious or to have more money, this is a great question. I'm going to ask you this. So how many here would be, want to be more conscious or have more money? Okay, how many want to be more conscious? Uh, how many want more money? <laughs> well, Carolyn Mace is at 99% of people in the room when she asked, it took the money. But here's what, this is a wonderful story, because this is our challenge. I think this story articulates our challenge doing this work. She says, one brave man at this seminar, after she asked these questions, one brave man raised his hand and he shared that he was not prepared to live as conscious a life as he knew he should or could because he didn't think it was fair. It's not fair. Being more conscious than the people he lived with made him resent them. <laughs> I asked him to describe what he meant by more conscious, and he said, well, since I'm the one studying all this consciousness material and learning about the power of positive attitudes and how we tend to forgive in order to heal, it seems I'm always the one who has to do the forgiving. And everyone else in the house gets to stay resentful because they're not as conscious of the, of the toxic health consequences of being unforgiving or angry. 
Isn't this true? You go home and, you're, and, these, and people are just having a great time being resentful and angry. And you stand there because you used to jump right in there with them going, Oh, I miss it so much. I'm always the one who has to see things as illusions and symbolically, while everyone else gets to take them literally and stay bitter or greedy or lustful or angry or whatever. To be honest, it seems that the more unconscious you are in the world, the more fun you have. We laugh, but it's true. I, I wish I could go back to sleep. I said that like 15 years ago. I said, man, oh man. I didn't realize the kind of fun I was having. And then I woke up to my part to play in it. <clears throat> He's, he continues, and to be honest again, I'm not ready to be as forgiving as one who's supposed to be on a spiritual path. I'm not ready to be compassionate towards everyone. I don't feel that way, and I, and I can't fake it. I just don't... <clears throat> I still need to feel superior to others in order for me to keep my world in order. I do feel better than people who do not have an education. I do feel better than people who do not have an education and people who refuse to go to, to work, and that's all there is to it. I do feel superior to rapists and murderers, and no one can convince me otherwise. I am not prepared to see the goodness in those people. They are not good people. They are evil and cruel, and some are unredeemable, at least so far as I'm concerned. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but does any of this make sense, or am I just reading this to myself up here? It's a waste of time for me to think good thoughts about them and serves no purpose whatsoever. That's someone else's calling in this lifetime. It's easy to do that, to say, I can't do this. And so long as I'm being really honest, he continues, can you imagine that guy standing up in the middle of a seminar and doing this? What a great story, though. I still need to exaggerate. I still need to lie on occasion. I don't steal. I never commit petty crimes or any street stuff, but at the interpersonal level, I love this, the interpersonal level, I still need to break the law, the laws of God and conscience. So the fact is, I am more conscious of deliberately choosing to not be conscious than my commitment to maintain a conscious life. (laughs) Amen to that, huh? There's great clarity on this guy's part. It's just too hard sometimes, and as I say, it doesn't seem fair to have to work harder than other people are just so unconscious. After this surprisingly honest confession, many other people admitted they felt the same way. Living a conscious life was just too painful or too hard or too unfair. And they didn't feel that they had reaped any of the benefits of being conscious. They feel that they have to lie in order to get by in life. They can't give up judging other people. Just the thought of having to live that conscious life is overwhelming. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Because I think that's the challenge for many of us. We get these principles and we want to embody them. And what, the, what, we can, what we realize, if we look at the life of, of, of Jesus of Nazareth, for example, or the Buddha, something shifted within those individuals. And I don't know what it was. I was just watching a show yesterday called The Secrets of the Cross, and they were talking about the death of Jesus, and they were talking about some of the dynamics of it. There is no historical proof that he even lived. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying there's no historical proof. The only thing they have evidence of is they actually found something that, that identifies Pontius Pilate. So, but there's no historical evidence that he ever lived. But something shifted. His story, something shifted with him. And if we look at the story that was left to us, and as he said, these things I have done, and ye shall do an even greater. 
Now, he, his ministry, they say, was three years. But he had a group of people around him that he journeyed with. He had his disciples and he had the apostles. And if we can take anything from it, they all needed to step into it because it was very uncomfortable at times for them. They didn't just all get it. They were around this individual. They were around the consciousness, but they were in and out, back and forth, back and forth. But what he provided for them, and I believe what we can provide for one another here, is a place to practice. And the reason that it's such a challenge for us, because if we continue to buy into race consciousness, if we continue to buy into the idea that there's not enough, what hap- that there's, there's not enough to go around, that we need to compete, that our tribe is better than your tribe, all that stuff that's very popular. We never step in. We stay in the confusion. We stay in the darkness. We stay in the fear. There is nothing to fear. And we give so much energy to the fear. When I was uh, 18 years old, I came home from uh, university one day. My father had a, uh, he had a uh, liquor store. And my brother and he ran it. It had been a family grocery store and they went broke. All the, big, we've, the, the community I grew up in finally grew to the size where a, a small family grocery store couldn't survive, couldn't compete. But they had in the corner of the store a small liquor store. So it was kind of common. And they had a post office, so it was kind of like a general store. And we were pretty far out in the country when it was first, a uh, hundred years prior. It, it had been there a long time. been a trading post at one time. I came home and there was just squad cars everywhere. Cop cars everywhere. And I went in and they had, uh, they'd held up the liquor store. Some guys came in with shotguns and they held up the liquor store. My father, I don't think my father ever had a day in his life where he went for a walk. I was, I was thinking about him this week. I don't think he ever took a walk in his life. I never saw him take a day off. <clears throat> I don't even know if I can tell a story. Anyway, he, uh, they had come in and they'd handcuffed it, my brother and he behind their backs and they put them in the floor and they, they went through and because it was a post office what these guys didn't realize they stole a bunch of stamps so the FBI was there like in 15 minutes but they uh, they tracked them down they had to track them down but the, it's a federal crime to steal stamps and uh, so uh, but my dad was there and, he, and I just remember the look on his face and just how scared scared he was and he lived in that fear his whole life. We never talked about anything of a philosophical nature. It was survival for us growing up. But he looked at me and he said, you know, I just knew. Because what had happened is when they handcuffed him, they got everything in the, the bags. Well, they left one of the guys behind. And, and they, one of the guys said, the, the guy looking over my dad and my brother was, you know what to do with these guys. And so my dad said, they're going to kill us. <coughs> but he said... As I was in this, he said, I just knew I didn't want to die. I just knew I didn't want to die. And he just teared up. And he just said, you know, 
I just told these guys, you know, whatever you need, we'll get for you. Whatever you take whatever you need. Just take it. But he said, I just I was in such deep prayer, I didn't want to die. So when I look at my legacy, my opportunity, and the, and the people that have gone before me, I think about my dad a lot lately. I have been given so many opportunities. I've been given this teaching. He was a devout man. He was a man of faith. But he had another tradition. And I don't think he needed to ask the questions like I asked them. You know, I don't think he had that deep longing to connect with spirit. But I saw the vulnerability. And I, and I think back to that, that time he finally opened up and said, I knew I didn't want to die. All the things that he wouldn't see anymore, I didn't want to die. So it's easy to look out at the world and compare ourselves to others and say, you know, they're not doing it, so I'm not doing it. But if we are interconnected, the work that we do spiritually, the transformation that takes place with us, our higher purpose is what our soul can accomplish in union with our ego and God. Our ego and God, not in opposition to it. And when we admit to ourselves and to the divine, I'm now ready to work with you and to be directed by my soul and my destiny, things shift and change. My father never had that opportunity. He never asked that question. But I'm asking it for him. I'm accountable to his legacy. And we're all accountable to the generations that brought us here. Not because we have to, but because it was their gift. And we're laying the groundwork of, of consciousness and foundation. This thing at the Windspear, we're going to, I announced we're going to give money away. What happens when we dive into this, all of a sudden we get cracked open to the point where we realize that my life is not just about my life, it's about helping somebody else. That's what the call is, and I think that's why we're scared many times, because if we believe there's not enough, how can I possibly help another person in a meaningful way? What I know about you and I, you are ready to live a deeper experience, not just read about it. You're ready finally to heal from your painful past. I know I am. To stop seeing your spirituality as a means of personal healing and entitlement. Because that's not what this teaching is, and yet that's what so many think it is. It's about getting ours. You are ready to see spiritually as a power for the healing of others. You are ready to build a soul with stamina. Divine timing and human need make the time right for this new soul calling. That's the era we're into. See, the new age, it's not new anymore. It's middle age. Discipline, in which every day something is expected of you as an individual. That's what it takes. You are not left to your own devices once you step in. Your own schedule. You maintain rituals and invoke grace and generate a connection with the sacred and daily life. And that's what we're called to do. It's that simple. And so today, let's all look as we leave here today for a place where we can help another person. Maybe we open a door for someone. Whatever it may be. But I know we're ready. And so it is. Thank <clears throat> you.